This is The Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joe Cohen from Queen's College. I'm Leslie Hinkson from Georgetown University. And I may or may not be Gabriel Rossman from UCLA. You'll have to decide. <laughs> <laughs> We're on the web, theannexpodcast.com, on Twitter at Sochanex, and on Facebook, The Annex Sociology Podcast. Today, we're happy to speak with Robert Francis from Johns Hopkins. Robert is the author of the forthcoming piece in Socius, Him, Not Her, Why Working Class White Men Are Reluctant About Trump and Still Made Him President of the United States. We're going to talk about Trump supporters, the 2016 election, and much more. You're not going to want to miss this. Welcome, Robert. Thanks. It's great to be here. I did a power pose beforehand, so I'm feeling pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> I met Robert a couple weeks ago. We got flown into this uh, strange workshop. About a dozen of us got flown in. There was uh, some engineer who was very successful in his career, and he was very interested in research about how to deal with uh, automation and the economically displacing effects of automation. So uh, Monica Prasad of Northwestern flew a bunch of people in and basically we met at 8, 8 a.m. And uh, we were told that we had about eight hours to come up with a proposal on that topic and then five minutes to talk to the funder and no other guidelines. And we all whipped up projects. And I thought Robert, Robert was such an interesting guy. Uh, so I'm really glad that you came, you came to visit us. That was a, it was a weird experience. Robert, what did you think of it? Yeah, I think we had said it was really unlike anything any of us had done before. And someone mentioned maybe it's a model that has been used in other forums like B-Schools, but certainly not in my experience in sociology. But it was a pressure cooker of a day to sort of start from zero and have a dozen presentations by the end of the day. Um, yeah. I think some enjoyed the pressure cooker more than others. I think Joe <laughs> actually sort of enjoyed it. I don't know. Um, I loved it. <laughs> this story feels like it should have ended with you guys all having to spend the night in a haunted house or like the, the lights go out and when they come back up, there's a dead body with a knife in its back or something. I'm kind of disappointed yeah. that it was just a, a PowerPoint at the end of all this. Well, we did get a really nice dinner. So I guess, you know. Okay, it so was it, wasn't a, it wasn't a PowerPoint at the end. It was a PowerPoint and then a dinner. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. That's right. It was uh, wonderful. Uh, a great group. And I have to say, like, uh, so many amazing graduate students. I'm just I'm I'm just I'm blown away by how talented the uh, crop of sociologists coming up through the system are. There's so many talented ones. Oh, every every time I reflect on that, I just thank God I went on the market in 2005. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? <laughs> Isn't that the truth? Yeah, that so, I was going to say be glad you're not going on the market soon, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, no I'm kidding. Well, good luck. You got it. You got some Great research, and I know you're going to do great. We'll get to it, but let's start off with some banter. Uh, who wants to start? I do. I do. Right. I want to talk about the engagement of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. Mm, big news in my family. Uh, <laughs> no, it's, it is. My, my mother's side is are their royal watchers. I'm Canadian, so it's like a thing. Yeah, I know. I mean, you know, I'm like my family's from the Anglophonic Caribbean. You know what I mean? And even through independence, I mean, we're still, you know, the British influence is still, I mean, it's still deep. And, um, and for me, the reason why this is so significant, I'm not a royal watcher um, and I don't care about celebrities, but finally, 
finally, we get a real, for real, Black princess. There is no oh. Black princess in the British <laughs> crown, people. Also, the, is this uh, like some kind of dig on um, the Disney movie with uh, Princess and the Frog? That doesn't count. That's your objection. Well, I mean, she's going to be a bona fide okay. princess. She's marrying into the royal yeah. family, right? And sound, you know that, what that I mean. And it's like more official than, uh, yeah. yeah. And like you know what I mean. It's like your kid, your my my little daughter isn't going to be playing with her Tiana doll and have another kid playing with her Cinderella doll and have the other kid turn around and say, well, she's not a real princess because you know what? Meghan Markle is about to be a real princess. I, I didn't even know that she was a woman of color. Uh, I'm, I'm not an avid uh, royal watcher, but but uh, that's wonderful. Well, she's American, right? No, yeah, she's American. She's an actress. Um, you know, full disclosure, um, she's uh, what some might, uh, called biracial. One of her parents is black. The other parent is white. Um, and so, you know, people might fight about it like they did or like they do whenever there's <laughs> good stuff to be had. You know, all of a sudden, yeah. all of a sudden, like America's hypo descent rule as it as it applies to black folk, all of a sudden doesn't apply anymore. You're like, oh, but she's half white, right? <laughs> Just like they did during Obama's uh, bid for the presidency. And uh, and then when it's time, and when bad stuff comes around, then all of a sudden hyperdescent comes back, right? They're like, <laughs> move to the back of the bus. Yeah. You can't ride in the Pullman car. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, and if you were president between the years of 2009 and 2016, then you were black. <laughs> <laughs> it will be wonderful though i didn't know about that mm-hmm. uh oh that's wonderful also a northwestern grad i saw mm. i have a and american <laughs> you think they're that's gonna fuel anything uh some royal fever here in america americans uh well uh americans were gaga for princess die Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I don't know. I mean, what I, I I don't know. I think it depends, you know, on 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 whether or not we really are having a racial moment, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> is her Americanness going to trump the fact that she's that she's basically black, right? Um, or you know, or is this going to be one of the things that unite us all, right, across the color line? Is there some type of research that uh, that shows that uh, like black celebrities are not seen as black when they reach a certain level of public esteem? I'm thinking of there's a famous movie. I forget which one it is, where it's like it, it must have been from the 90s. Where it's like Michael Jordan doesn't count as black. Oh, or, you're, oh, you're uh, nobody, talking about do the right thing. That's what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. It, is is that is, does that is that ever been borne out in evidence like that people's blackness is taken away when they uh, when they're widely liked or famous? Well, I haven't seen any studies, but you know, anecdotally speaking, <laughs> you know, I when Beyonce did the did the Super Bowl halftime, apparently I hear a lot of white people lost their minds. Right? They were like, "What? Beyonce's black." Why is she doing the black power salute? What's happening? So uh, whether or not there's literature on that, I thought there was literature on basically when someone's a stranger, you'll do the Bayesian inference thing and all that sort of thing and apply stereotypes to get a um, a conception of them. But once you get to know somebody, they just have their own personal identity. Um, is that is that correct? I just kind of have a vague association. It's not like I've read a bunch of articles on that lately. 
Um, yeah, well, you know, yeah, it's like, you know, you can hate all people of of group X, except for the one that yeah, you Yeah, well, know. I hate Canadians until right. I got to know Joe, and, you know. <laughs> 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 yeah. You're a credit to your nationality, Joe. <laughs> well, wait a second, because, uh, you know, I mean, if you're thinking about this, I mean, I, I think it's just that, you know, here's two relatively high-profile young people, and they fell in love, and I think at, the, at this point you don't really have dynastic policy as a, as a meaningful concept anymore. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you are talking about it in terms of like, oh, now there's a princess who represents, you know, the new world or, um, you know, black people or something like that, you know, you could think of it in terms of it, it, those countries that do have serious dynastic policies. They very often do have not the thing that we saw in Europe for a long time of almost like an incestuous, style royal dynastic policy like that characterized the Habsburgs but you'll have a mm -hmm. deliberate mm -hmm. policy of marrying into um, you know different uh, peoples who are part of the empire you know th that was a classic thing that, yeah. of a lot of uh, Persian speaking empires for instance so if you look at the you know early uh, Mughal dynasts they you know they look Central Asian or um, Turkic uh, and then you know by the later period they look Indian and that's because, you know, over successive mm -hmm. generations, they kept marrying, uh, you know, local princesses. Uh, not all uh, dynasties do that, right? So the Ptolemies didn't do that at all. They stayed as a, uh, a Greek dynasty, even though they were in Egypt, but they never intermarried with the local Egyptians. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's interesting, right? Um, some dynasties understood <clears throat> that... Uh, that genetic diversity is actually good for the lion. I, I don't think right? they were because worrying about can, how to yeah. get rid of hemophilia. Uh, I, I, I th yeah, well, that's what no, I'm no, saying. But I, I think I'm it was like, much I... more about drawing connections between the royal household and different constituencies. No, for sure. But they figured out that you could do that without marrying your first yeah. cousin. <laughs> well, right? I, I'd say that's more of a, uh, an ancillary benefit. Uh, I mean, certainly from our perspective, looking at like, you know, these people with these really horrible uh, genetic diseases, we, we see, we look at that. And especially because in our culture, we have a very strong incest taboo. You know, we, we hmm. see that as like, oh, well, of course, you just want to do it for the genetic uh, benefits. But that's because we think about things in terms of, you know, and we we're you know, we're a culture where you get your genes screened to make sure that you, you know, aren't going to pass on genetic diseases to your kids and that sort of thing. But, it, you know, traditional cultures, um, marriage is much more about political power and social affiliation. And so mm -hmm. I think if you have a royal household marrying a, um, you know, someone from, say, a local community who's part of the subject peoples of the empire, that has nothing to do with, oh, we want to make sure that, you know, three generations from now, we're not a bunch of hemophiliacs. It has much more to do with um, we want to make these people not rebel because they'll feel a connection to the royal house. Oh, no, def I mean, definitely, definitely for sure. But I mean, but there is, I mean, one of the ways to also shore up your power is to make sure that you have healthy yeah, offspring, yeah. right? You know, it's like, you know, and if you keep, you know, if they if they all die during infancy or if they all you know, are born with hemophilia or, or whatever else, right? You're just like, dude, you know, we're going to have to ditch this, this one and get another wife soon. Yeah. And that's it. Uh, uh, one, uh, other issue. I don't know if anybody noticed this. Uh, she's older than Harry. Well, I know. And she's divorced. 
right? So that's the thing we're not, we haven't been talking about. Like, oh, there's all really? this thing of like, oh, she, she is, is she black? Is she half black? Does it count as black? Hypothesis, all that sort of stuff. Is she well, American? it's because it was my But like traditionally, that would have been the single most important thing, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, if you think of like the traditional notion of like who can marry into the royal household, it's like, you know, A, is she a Protestant? B, is she uh, never married? see all these sorts of things but uh you know that th she just kind of like converted like right before the engagement uh to anglicanism nobody cares about that you have seen basically nobody mention it mm -hmm. and um <clears throat> that she's divorced is the kind of thing that was disqualifying in the early 20th century uh you know we mm -hmm. saw King yes so, so so would have been her being black so well but not as explicitly <laughs> right it, it might there wasn't like a rule there was a rule that said you had to be never married and an Anglican. There was no explicit rule. There might very well have been a tacit rule. Um, uh, I bet it was a pretty strong tacit well, rule. I, I, I will agree <laughs> with that, but I'm saying it wasn't written down. You got to be white. It was written yeah. down that you have to be an Anglican and never married. I would imagine, though, although it was unwritten, it would be like it would be such a profoundly important rule that like, it didn't even need to be written out. Yeah. Right. Right. Like the, the, you know, like, uh, but who knows? Very interesting stuff. 2017 continues to be the uh, year of airing out dirty laundry, you know, sexual harassment, uh, Matt Lauer this morning, which I don't want to talk before about. Before you get any further, I feel bad about saying like, oh, uh, Franken, it's, you know, that's totally just like awkwardness. And then like right after we taped, something else came out. It was like a second. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> this is the problem of a one lead time. Yeah, yeah. Keep in mind, this is Wednesday, November 29th. So everything we say, well, you know, because we're now on, uh, you know, since we now have a scandal every 45 minutes. You know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's true. But anyhow, I don't want to, first of all, this is, we're going to, this is going to become the Harvey Weinstein show if we keep up like this. But uh in any case, this is the year there's dirty laundry coming out, also with research misconduct. And uh, this morning, and we are recording on Wednesday, November 29th, I read uh, this article in Ars Technica about trouble again in psychology. Did you guys read this? Yeah. Oh, yeah. French psychologist Nicolas, I guess it's Gagin, from the University of South Brittany. And he, this guy has over 330 papers listed on ResearchGate. I couldn't look up the details because his website crashed this morning. Yeah. <laughs> but, but suffice to say, this this gentleman is extremely well published. And the kind of work he does are experiments that demonstrate uh, a really conventional view of gender roles. The writer of the article, Kathleen O'Grady, characterized it as Mars versus Venus gender studies, yeah. which I thought was awesome. But like, did you hear some of his hot well, takes on gender? Just like stuff that it were almost like tailor made to like get traffic from Cosmo or, you know, it, it's stuff totally. like, you know, you know, how sexy are high heels and, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Like clickbait <laughs> research. Yeah. Among his blockbuster findings, men, men <laughs> prefer women in red dresses. Men like high heels. Men are more likely to help women when they wear their hair down as opposed to a ponytail. Or a bun. And, you know, I could just... Or What's a that? bun. We also ignore women. Or a bun, buns. sorry. Yeah. <laughs> have it Let's be yeah, precise. Yeah, exactly. The, I mean, measurement matters even when you're making it up. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you know what? I like I could just imagine someone like this. Like I'm, I'm making a mental note not to do a French accent, but I could just imagine this guy saying like Before we started yeah. taping, it was 100% Pepe Le Pew. <laughs> no, but first of all, in yeah. uh, in Canadian culture, mocking a French accent is okay. Is see, very but terrible. I'm an American, so I can say Z I R B. They require me. To... <laughs> well, but I could just hear this guy thinking like this will drive the feminists wild. But hey, yeah. it's science. Yeah. But like, <laughs> turns out it's not science. Two other researchers, James Heather's and Nick Brown, caught some oddities in the reported stats, and they were able to reverse engineer his data. And uh, they figured it out just by noticing odd roundings. Uh, like there were huh. a lot of variables that had odd roundings at the second decimal place. And clearly these these researchers were very sharp and they picked up with, on it and they reconstructed the data. And it turns out like the probability of getting those findings was extremely small. So, so what I don't get about this is, mm -hmm. to me, the worst part of doing research is getting something through peer review and dealing with the fucking R&Rs and all that. And then the second worst part is writing. The best part is collecting the data and doing the analysis. <laughs> totally. So, so to yeah. me, this is like nothing, you know, you never uh, cook and you never eat, but you just do dishes, you know, the whole yeah. time. <laughs> and I'm like, why would you do that? I, I mean, I'm much more likely to actually do the research and then like, never write it up and definitely never turn around the response memos. And then here, and then like similarly with Bruno Fry, who did, who legitimately did the research, but then he published the same paper four times. I'm thinking like, I don't even want to get it through peer review once. Why would you do <laughs> yeah. that four times? It doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. It seems, it seems like I listened to some of your previous conversations about these topics and, you know, it just struck me that there is this continuum, right? And I think you started to get at that in a previous podcast, but you know, you've got everything from complete fabrication yeah. of, of the data to, you know, to, to folks who maybe are making innocent mistakes or who are, you know, following the product of their training. And, you know, I don't know if there's an allowance in this and it, it made me think of, we talked at the beginning, well, in a joking way about, I mean, there's all this sexual harassment and, and there's been some discussion about, you know, the continuum there and it gets, yeah. it, it gets tricky. Um, to know sort of, does anyone who does anything, do they deserve to lose their jobs? And if not, then where is that line? And I'd say making up a bunch of data definitely falls on the side of the line where you oh, lose yeah. your job. Although fortunately, yeah. I, think, I think we can conclude no subjects <laughs> were sexually harassed in his lab. <laughs> yeah, I'd say, uh, uh, what's her name? Amy Cuddy is like an Al Franken. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that, yeah. Yeah. And then this this guy uh, Gagay is uh, he's a he's a Harvey Weinstein, but yeah. also like what a ridiculous! If you're gonna make up findings, yeah. like why make up findings that like men like high heels? Yeah, well, well I guess it's the clickbait. Aspect. Yeah, it, but also that's right because you can't exactly imagine that being like in the flagship journal. Because let's mm -hmm. say it's true, <laughs> who cares, right? What what do we yeah. conclude from that? Um, but I, I, you're leaving out one of my favorite parts of how they caught the guy is that they, there's this one of his research methods said that like the, you know, the the research collector or data collector or whatever, the Confederate would like basically hit on women in the street. And then after they turned them down, he'd ask them for their phone number and how old they were. 
<laughs> and, he, and they said that like a hundred percent of them told him how old they were, and they and they basically said, you know, they basically said we're not as good looking as this research assistant, but we don't, we don't believe that women who just been hit on and turned down the advance would, um, you know, provide that kind of personal information. <laughs> who is this guy? I bet this guy sounds like a real trip. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, he's your next podcast guest. <laughs> oh my! I think I'll take a, a hard pass on that. But like, yeah, definitely. But like, isn't it amazing? Like, just whatever's ha- like all the dirty laundry's coming out everywhere, eh? Like, yeah. I I mean, no, for sure, right? But you know, like, I don't know that this dirty laundry, like this bit of dirty laundry being aired at this point in time has anything to do with the whole with the whole sexual assault harassment and misconduct i mean i you know what i mean it's like Mm, there's that but then there's also like i also do think that you know there's also this stuff that's going on in academia right now you know i think that there is some witch hunting going on in academia right um, some of it is witch hunting and some of it is, you know, a- it is, is not that. And it is actually just genuine uh, curiosity about how people get uh, certain findings. Um, and I, I don't think the two are, are, are necessarily are necessarily related, but it does. I mean, it does feel like every day, like another one of our gods, right. is mm. taken down. Yeah. It was probably a weak tie in. So let's look for something, you know. No, but it, it does have a connection, like you, like Leslie was saying. There's, um, you know, moral cascades of accusation, and even if this isn't meaningfully part of the, you know, Weinstein cascade of accusation, it is part of the whole replication crisis, and mm-hmm. it's telling that this comes out of uh, psychology. Because that's the field where Again. people are, yeah, exactly. Because that's the field where people are getting increasingly uh, skeptical of previous findings. There's that, and uh, a colleague of mine uh, made a very good point because uh, I was we were having a discussion of like when is it sociology's turn? Because mm-hmm. you know, there's plenty of p hacking <laughs> going on here. And well, uh, I kind of feel like social <clears throat> had their turn, but like in thinking about more qualitative work and thinking about ethnography, yeah. for example, I mean. Mm. It was all, I mean, I was like, who knew that the New York Times knew so much about sociology, (laughs) right? For like a year. Right. Well, it's also just, she made the point that those of us who are data analysts, we mostly work with secondary data. Yeah. Like a really well, well known set. So So, uh, so if you're going to mess with GSS, you're going to get caught. So here's why... it happens with psychology and not sociology. It, it, which, of course, I'm going to sound dumb because in the six days before this comes out, there'll be a major scandal in sociology. But <laughs> totally. um, the, like you're just saying, right? We mostly deal with secondary data analysis. And then as Leslie was saying, we're, we also have original data analysis in the form of ethnography. But in neither of those cases is it amenable to someone conclusively proving you made up the data. So... right. If somebody, um, you know, so whereas with uh, psychology, they routinely collect their own data and I can't necessarily find, you know, these guys checking out women's legs and high heels that this guy mm-hmm. uh, claims to have interviewed, but I could do that experiment myself. 
easily, mm -hmm. right? I could take a bunch of pictures that I get off Instagram and put them on MTurk, have them rated, mm -hmm. and then I could very easily um, replicate his study and show whether it's true or not. And, and so that's that's how it works there. Whereas with secondary data analysis, it's like if you analyze the GSS, you'd have to be crazy to um, report the coefficients wrong because you know anybody else can download the GSS and precisely replicate your findings or not. And then with yeah. ethnography, even if you make up your field notes, you kind of have this thing of like, well, you weren't there. And with yeah. some of these accusations against ethnographers, they kind of had this, well, you weren't there, or who are you going to believe? These I can't disclose my my notes or my sources. Yeah, or... because there's an ethical consideration. It's a legitimate ethical consideration. Uh, but you know, but even if I did disclose my notes to you, um, you know, you're, it's going to be hard for you to verify that you know these things happened. Um, and right. in, you know, one of these is probably the most high-profile accusation of uh, academic fraud with uh, ethnography in recent years, you know, a journalist was able to verify that the field site did exist, the informants did exist, but, you know, didn't verify whether particular important instances happened. They may or may not have. And the ethnographer is like, well, you had to be there. I was there. And if you talk to these experts who say it didn't happen, well, fuck them because they just speak for power. And I'm, I'm the Lorax. So I speak for the trees. What do you what do you have to say about this, Robert? You're an ethnographer. Yeah, well, it's interesting, even the using ethnography, because I I'm sort of trained in a in a in a qualitative method, but more the sort of inter interview based mm -hmm. research, which does involve some participant observation, ethnographic observation. But um, in that sense, I mean, maybe it's a middle ground. I've been thinking a lot about this, um, given sort of your conversations and just what's happening in the discipline and the world. But you know, the qualitative research. I mean, it's in my vested interest to sort of think about these sorts of uh, potential pitfalls. And, you know, we do, for those of us who do sort of interview-based work, we do have the transcripts. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there's some, you know, I, I don't know what the cutting edge thinking is. I, I know most people don't release those for the confidentiality concerns, but there might be some ways to think about how creatively, how can we, you know, release that data. Um, I know that at Hopkins, we do a lot of team-based qualitative research. So it's not just you alone you know, in some remote location. But, you know, if we're doing a big N interview study, then you might have, you know, you know, dozens of people maybe from front from start to finish, you know, touching the data, looking at the data. And it's sort of nice for you as a researcher to be able to have other people read the transcripts and say, you know, are you seeing what I'm seeing? Because there is this subjectivity, this interpretive role that we play. And, um, you know, I, you know, even with, you know, my paper that we'll talk about, I mean, there's a sense of like, I mean, I know I didn't make up data. I have the transcripts, but there's still this sense of like, did I get it right? You know, did I sort of, am I seeing things the way that, and there might be more than one way to see these things. And I think that's where also we're just being transparent about your methods and your theory. And, um, you know, you guys have talked about that in the past a little bit too, about, I think David on a previous podcast talked about, you know, theory being one sort of key piece that differentiates qualitative sociology from you know, journalism, mm -hmm. basically. And but I also think methods is a big piece of that. I mean, we may still just talk to the same number of people in the same place. But as a sociologist, hopefully, we're bringing some methodological sophistication, we know what our data does and doesn't do, mm -hmm. what we can and can't do with this qualitative data, what claims we should and couldn't, you know, should and sh can and should make or shouldn't make. So um, yeah, it's definitely a lot to think about. I've been thinking a lot about it, given just some of your previous yeah. conversations. Well, I agree with all that. But I, I I'm more impressed by the methods of journalism than I was a week ago 
um, after seeing the Washington Post reverse sting the James O'Keefe people. <laughs> wow. they, they had a well-developed right. methodology for basically, uh, you know, entrapping, you know, basically, so the hunter becomes the hunted, you know, with turning around those wow, plans. Wow, yeah. What, yes, that did was you pretty guys awesome. see that? <laughs> yeah. I was very angry about that, though. Imagine, like, it's such a problem for people not to believe victims as is, and for somebody to, like, try to create mm-hmm. a high-profile event to show that, like, sexual assault accusers are liars or, you know what I mean, or discredit yeah. these women. Wow. Like, that takes chutzpah. Yeah. Yeah, no. And I and I'm like, that's one of like, you know, not wanting to be the Cassandra again. But like, that's one of the things that I'm like, oh, wait for it. Wait for it. Yeah. yeah. But all, uh, of course, all it really did was show that the, uh, you know, Waypo really knows her shit. And, you know, mm-hmm. and that if you give it a fair read, fair minded reading of the evidence, it shows that the accusations they published are credible because they subject them to that level of scrutiny. Yeah. Well, do, do you think that's going to make Robert? Do you think that's going to make a difference with uh, Trump supporters? This this story. Do you think it's even going to get to them? I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, I don't know if since it concerns the Washington Post. I mean, for the people I talk with, I, I mean, I didn't ask them about their media consumption habits, but um, I don't want to underplay the role of of uh, you know O'Keefe's work or some of these you know far right um, outlets, but and some of this like you know, stunt journalism or whatever you want to call it, this sort of sting stuff. Um, but I, I don't know if it's actually on the radar screens of a lot of the guys that I talk to. Um, I don't know that they're taking their cues. Well, maybe not this, this specific thing. thing, but the uh, the overall issue of his um, pederasty accusation I, has been hurting his poll numbers. Um, and I know some of the polls have shown him competitive in what should be a slam dunk race for a Republican. Yeah. Yeah, he has. I mean, it's a, you know, Jones might even be leading slightly, so... I think there was some polling that said that this like 30 percent of respondents said they'd be more likely to support more and there's this certain group of the electorate or more conspiratorial and this is just evidence that you know the liberal media is out to get um more so um you're gonna have a hard time reaching them <laughs> well you know like just one thing i have to say about that is even if you didn't believe these women, even if you thought that this was a conspiracy fabricated, whipped up by the Washington Post, the fact that he was banned from the mall and the YMCA, <laughs> right? Wait, was just... that actually verified? Because um, I was talking to somebody who basically has my same politics and they they were saying that they, uh, precisely because they would like to believe uh, that Moore was banned from the mall, they they didn't they were kind of skeptical of it because it seemed almost too good to be true and they hadn't seen anything about it that wasn't like secondhand oh i heard he was banned from the mall but at least at the time they hadn't seen anything that was um oh we had an interview with the manager of the mall and he you know when there were like you know pictures of him in the break room saying don't let this guy in or oh, like well you know what i'm gonna i'm going to engage in my own investigative <laughs> reporting <laughs> yeah. and i will get back to you on with that the same for standards the as the washington post the <laughs> <laughs> yes. in the news and inside higher ed there was an article on uh, brooke harrington who's kind of an economic sociologist stratification type person and she's looking at uh, the super wealthy and um, she's running into this little problem. Her job is as a business school professor in Denmark at um, Copenhagen Business School. 
And she's given several public lectures not directly attached to the university. So she's given uh, friendly lectures at other Danish schools, and she's given a talk to the Danish parliament. And um, she's in trouble for this because it's considered work that is not listed on her visa. So she obviously has a, uh, a work visa, uh, you know, being a foreigner in Denmark. Um, but her work visa, like a lot of work visas, it says you're allowed in to work at this employer doing this job. And the Danish immigration authorities are treating this as if she was basically moonlighting, driving an Uber or something like that. Uh, whereas like from my perspective, it's like this is what university professors do. It's part of the job. And it, the article I read doesn't indicate whether she received an honorarium for um, yeah. giving these things. If she received no honorarium, I think it's absolutely ridiculous. Um, if she yes. did receive an honorarium, I could say, okay, this is a mix-up, you know, and I understand how mm -hmm. she should have declined the honorarium or, you know, something like that, because that is technically, uh, you know, earning income. But if you're giving a lecture for free, that's not work, in my opinion, even if it's very similar to yeah. what you do at a job. I mean, I don't consider myself to have moonlit when I visited Duke a couple months ago to give a lecture. Uh, well, this would be moonlighting what we're doing right now. If, if unpaid work on. Yeah, that's right. We're doing a radio show. Uh, you yeah. know, uh, yeah, you're right. And, and it's part of academic culture, right? That uh, part of being mm -hmm. a productive academic is visiting other schools and giving lectures at those schools. Sometimes there's an honorarium. Sometimes there's not. I've done this a few dozen times. Most of the time there was no honorarium. A couple of times there was a, you know, uh, nominal uh, honorarium. I, I don't want to sound ungrateful for it, but it was basically nominal. Yeah. It's like dinner. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, typically they pay your expenses and that's it. Um, and uh, yeah, and the idea that like UCLA would be mad at me for going to visit these other schools and give talks is absurd. And the idea that like, I mean, I'm an I'm an American citizen, so I, but even if I did this in say a Canadian school, I, I can't imagine uh, Canada getting mad at me for giving a lecture at uh, you know McGill or something. Right. I think the article does say that it 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 doesn't matter if it's paid or unpaid. That just because it's outside of the, I guess the scope of duties as defined by the work permit, something like that. So I, I was, I had the same question about whether it mattered that if she got money for it, but it sounds like not. And the fact that it was at the parliament is, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's really weird, eh? They invited her and then they said, oh, by the way, this is a criminal violation of your, your work visa. I mean, my question would be, I mean, I saw this article too, and just wondering, yeah, if the rules are, I mean, they're obviously this affects all academics who have these similar types of of work permits or visas. So I'm curious, you know, I mean, I'm sympathetic to her because it does seem like if it's as it sounds, this rule seems ridiculous. Um, it really is part of what you do as an academic to share your work. But obviously, uh, you know, others are under this constraint and the fact that she's run into it. I mean, I'm not a conspiratorial thinker, but this idea that given her work, I mean, other people have wondered, you know, what's going on here. I don't know if that has anything to do with it, but it um, is interesting. Yeah, we'll that, tell, nobody uh, told her work. Gabriel, can you go? Because I, I bet you the topic of her work. She studies tax havens, basically. And uh, the Panama Papers yeah. also, like in sp specifically. And I know, of course, in America, it's barely made ripples because everybody's, you know, so deferential to rich people. But in other countries, this is really triggered like major. Well, also, there weren't outrage. that many Americans in the Panama Papers. Um, 
You, do you know what they're doing? I heard they're doing in Canada. I, I, I'm, I'm going to say I'm, I'm 80% on this, but I remember hearing on the CBC, what they're doing is uh, they're triggering audits in the five wealthiest postal codes, uh-huh. uh, people whose incomes don't match the value of their home are going to be pulled in for audits. Yeah. And I thought, wow, if you did that in America, one, that would never happen in America. They'd be like, congratulations. Thank you for evading taxes. Well, that does happen with uh, criminal inquiries, right? So that's effectively what they're doing right now with Paul Manafort, where he has very little reported income. And like the Weekly Standard had some really good reporting about how he seems to have been laundering all this sketchy foreign income (laughs) through rug salesmen, where he claimed to buy like a million dollars worth of rugs from like, you know, Joe's rugs and, you know, Fairfax, Virginia. Cypress. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, but he paid for it with a, a Cypriot bank statement. And then, but then um, it seems like he's presumably getting some type of kickback from the, the, like maybe he's actually getting something to put on his floor, but he's not getting something to, yeah. to carpet a football field, uh, you know, nor is he getting like something that was owned by the 14th Mughal emperor. He's just getting like a, a nice rug, and then he's presumably getting this money as a kickback somehow as a way to money launder it. So I have a question. So like getting back to to the papers, right? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, there may not have been uh, a whole lot of American individuals, um, but it's my understanding that there were at least a few really big American corporations, right, that were outed, right? Um in these- Those were in the Paradise Papers. Oh, that's right, the Paradise Papers. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking about. I'm talking. I'm thinking about this newest iteration, right? Yeah. So, and in thinking about that, like it got me thinking about this tax bill, right? This tax bill that like gives these tax cuts, these forever tax cuts to corporations, <laughs> with this idea that oh yeah, if you just lower the tax rate then, you know, then corporations will just pay that tax and, and that's that. And you're like, what? Like, why would they do that? No, no, but they, that actually does make sense because, you know, if you talk to economists who study this sort of thing. Now, there's some assumptions of that that are highly dubious. So the assumption that if you have increase in profits, that the incidence of that will go through wages. Uh, I would believe that if it was 30 years ago, but for the last decade or yeah. two, You've seen rising profits without pass through to wages. No, but, no, but, exactly. But, but the, the the issue with taxes is that the way that you reduce tax evasion is that you lower the rate and you cut the loopholes. If you have a simple tax structure uh, with a low rate but no loopholes, or you know, if you want to call them deductions or whatever, then you get less tax evasion than uh, if you have a high, you know, stated rate but tons of you know credits for this and you know, depreciations for that. Um, that's how you end up getting a lot of tax evasion. I actually believe what we're going to find is that corporations are going to be paying like in terms of real dollar values, mm-hmm. it's going to, we're, we're going to be seeing less money from corporations. And I think they're we're going to be seeing the same amount of offshoring, et cetera. This isn't going, I mean, this isn't going to matter and we're not going to see, we're not going to see, you know, that like reduction in taxes moving on to the offshoring at all. Jobs or offshoring. Um, so I, I would profits, believe that. Profits. Yeah. So I, I, I don't believe that like factories are going to come back based on what you no, did with the tax code, but no, I do no, believe yeah. that you're not going to stash your money in Ireland. If the, uh, if the well, if the American uh, corporate income tax is more comparable to that 
in other countries, you don't have an incentive to stash your money in Ireland. And well, for, you don't and, have and for, to because you, you don't have to do that because you can stash your money in Delaware. Yeah. <laughs> now, yeah. right? Well, Delaware still is the federal thing, right? I mean, uh, Ireland, uh, you know, attracts a lot of investment, at least on paper. And so, like, you have this absurdity that, you know, Apple claims to be, in some respects, an Irish company rather than a San Francisco mm-hmm. Bay Area company um, because it has the lowest tax rates in Europe. Um, but like as long as there's a place with super low rates, this thing, I'm sure they'll be, it's not as if they're going to cut tax rates and be like, well, now this is all done. Yeah. And be like, nah, now they're still too high. Let's cut them somewhere else. So they won't go. And to- isn't it also true that historically when the U S has actually done this, like cut uh, corporate tax rates significantly, then other countries just make the same move. I don't know if that's true. I do know that, um, Cutting the corporate tax rate is one of the few places where the Laffer curve does seem to apply. That, like last time, there was like a, uh, you know, a, a drop in the corporate tax rate. You did see a lot of repatriation of profits that had been parked overseas for a long time. Well, we're in this new stage of capitalism. Let's see if that happens. And I also propose that we have a new rule that whenever whenever somebody says Laffer curve, we change yeah. subjects. <laughs> well, I, okay, listen, listen. I generally don't believe it, right? And I generally think, I mean, in some ways it almost has to be true, but the question is where's the maximum of the curve? And the answer to that question is not 30 or 40%. It's considerably higher, right? The maximum of the curve is somewhere between, I don't know, 50 and 90%. But it's not thirty or forty percent, and you, there's no way that you can when, raise um, revenue by cutting the U.S. Uh, federal income tax rate because because we're already well below the maximum of the curve. Now that the now that the Supreme Court has declared that corporations are people, do you think behavioral uh, economists will start actually uh, treating corporations more like people and look at their behavior? Well. <laughs> I mean, but we look at corporate behavior, but yeah, I get the joke, but um, I don't know. They, they, this issue of like being um, apoplectic at corporations being people, um, I mean, it's just a way to have corporations have access to legal rights, which um, I'd say is arguably a good thing because otherwise, how is the New York Times going to have First Amendment rights? The New York Times is a corporation. Yeah, that's a conversation for another day. Yeah, sure. That's for our political philosophy episode <laughs> and legal philosophy. Yeah, that's right, which none of us have expertise in. <laughs> and now we turn to Robert Francis from Johns Hopkins University. Robert's a graduate student there and the author of a forthcoming article in Socius, Him, Not Her, Why Working Class White Men Reluctant About Trump still made him president of the United States. Uh, Thank you for joining us, Robert. Thanks for having me. So can you start off by telling us a little bit about this forthcoming piece? Yeah, sure. I'm happy to. Um, So I should say to start maybe that I, um, my overriding interests are actually in sort of the declining labor force participation among the working class, particularly um, younger working class men. So I was in the field for that project and had no sort of plan to think about (laughs) uh, policy or politics. Um, It just so happens, though, that I happened to start my field work in the summer of 2016, um, just before the conventions, you know, (laughs) and so here I am in rural Pennsylvania talking to the white working class um, and uh, this election thing is happening. And so um, for my initial respondents that I talked to that summer, I actually didn't really talk much about the election. It sort of came up tangentially a little bit, but um, you know, it wasn't part of my original research, and 
you know, frankly, I think probably like a lot of people, I thought, you know, in six months, you know, we'll all happily put Trump as a footnote to history. And hmm. um, there's no really need to ask these guys about how they feel about um, the soon-to-be Republican nominee. Well, of course, turns out six months later, I go back to the field in January, just before the inauguration of President Trump. And um, suddenly, you know, everyone is interested, not just in Trump, but in the white working class and this narrative that's, that sprung up really the day after the election. Um, and even to some degree before that about, you know, the role that the white working class played in his election. So when I was back in the field in January and again in March, um, talking to more of these white working class men, I then did ask explicitly about the election and why, who they voted for and why. And so I then gathered this data, but it still wasn't my primary focus. And then Socius, you know, I guess, thankfully, they put out a call for papers on gender in the election. And so I was able to sort of use that as the incentive to write up what I had found. Nice. Um, so, yeah, I think, I mean, this sort of the main takeaway is that um, I found a lot more reluctance about Trump among these men than I think is often depicted in some of the scholarly and popular depictions of this group. Um, you know, it's it seems like... Um, most of the debate kind of post-election assumes that the white working class were attracted to Trump. And the debate has really been about whether it was economic anxiety or racial resentment or what combination of those things is really at play. But sort of under both of those is that that Trump really appealed to these guys in a unique way. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, of course, I can't dispute, you know, I have a small end sample. It's a small study. But um, I found a lot more sort of wide-eyed approach to Trump. Uh, they They really saw him a bit for what he was. They were unsure of him. They had the reasons to sort of suspect him and they weren't, you know, they, they just weren't sure. Um, they weren't sure about Trump and there was a reluctance about him. And so my first finding as I sort of read through these transcripts um, was just this idea that, you know, there's all this reluctance, but then when I asked them who they voted for, when I tallied that up, you know, most of them still voted for Trump. And so then and for me, that was the puzzle is despite all the stated reluctance, why did they vote for him? And you know, for me, it, what seemed clear is that, you know, Clinton was sort of even more objectionable. She was the worst choice. Mm -hmm. um, so um, I think maybe that sort of leads me to the conclusion that we're sort of in a way underselling um, Trump's opponent and some of the uh, the dynamics around Clinton as the alternative candidate. Um, and, you know, there's a lot we can unpack there. Maybe I'll come up for air and see. Um, I haven't, since this hasn't been published yet, I, I'm really curious what you guys think about it. Um, yeah, um, so... From what you've said so far, it brings up a couple of questions for me, right? So the first is, you know, you talked about you talk about their skepticism. What about him were they skeptical skeptical about? I mean, I know for me, part of I mean, maybe part of it is that like I grew up in New York under the shadow of Trump, and you know, number one, I was just like, first of all, I don't know how anyone can take him seriously, um, but mm -hmm. it also seemed to me that. You know, and thinking about Trump and his glitz and his glamour and, you know, and, and his like unabashed, like flaunting of his wealth, what could, like, what could anyone from the working class actually see in him as being a true champion, especially as reports were coming out that, you know, he screwed so many of his workers who were their working class compatriots. Yeah, I think those are great points. And obviously, I share some of that incredulity. But I think for these guys, Trump sort of represented, I mean, they talked a lot about him as the businessman, as an outsider politically. And again, this is where I think, you know, in analyses of the election that don't include sort of what Clinton also represented to 
some of these voters is that, you know, I think they were looking for a change candidate. They were looking for someone who was from outside the system. And I think, uh, you know, as I mentioned in the paper, many of them did say they would have voted for Sanders or considered Sanders. I just think they, you know, Trump, you know, yeah, so I, I, I get some of the dissonance of, you know, what Trump represents for some, but for these guys, he, I think they emphasize the sense of a business leader and someone coming from outside the system. And, you know, Clinton for them, even though she was the first female nominee of a major party, you know, she also represented sort of a sense of status mm-hmm. quo, a sense of, you know, political mm-hmm. corruption, of even financial corruption. Um, they have sort of, in a way, been dealing with her for decades. She was obviously uh, a known entity for many of them. And so, and so the and I think you know the dislike of her goes back you know long before this campaign cycle. So, so I think in a binary choice, they sort of in a way. I mean, they saw that it was a risk. Many of them talked about how Trump, you know, was it was it was like rolling the mm-hmm. dice in a certain way. But I guess for their calculus, at least for the ones who were conflicted. I mean, I did have some voters who, um, you know, they weren't thrilled with Trump uh, with some of his behavior or some of his excesses. But they and they saw some of the risks that he posed. But they you know, they were Republican voters or they were pro-life voters or, you know, it seemed to me in my conversations with them that they were never really, you know, seriously considering uh, a non-Trump alternative, you know, voting for the Democrat, basically. But I did have some guys who, again, voted for Obama or you know, t- told me that they would have really preferred an alternative to Trump. But in the end, they just really saw an equivalence between, you know, the corruption of Trump and Hillary. And so for them, they went with the political outsider, the guy with no record, the guy, you know, who might shake things up or represents a change. Yeah. So uh, I know you did your research basically um, starting around the convention. So you didn't have access to people during the primary. But um, did you notice any distinction between uh, the primary voters and people who were like, well, I would have rather support Rubio or Cruz or whomever. Uh, But you know, ultimately, I have to go with the nominee, um, you know, because I've noticed that in like, you know, seeing people that there was a big difference between people who were, uh, you know, favored him among the other candidates and kind of like once he got the nomination, reluctantly kind of came home to the party. Um, and you can see this uh, systematically in some of the survey data and that like evangelical Protestants who had high church attendance tended to support Cruz in the primary and those who or, or you know, earlier on some of the other candidates, um, whereas uh, evangelical Protestants who don't attend church uh, were very strong Trump constituency from very early. So with my data, I didn't ask all of them who they voted for in the primary, so I can't probably make, um, fully answer the question. But what I can say is that, you know, I did have a few guys in my sample who were first-time voters who voted for Trump. So they were the sort of, you know, I guess, so you know, for those, there is some percentage of the population of the white working class population that did respond, you know, uniquely to Trump's message. And both of these guys in my sample were clear that they would have not, they would not have voted for anyone else. So they certainly would qualify as folks who um, were Trump supporters in the primary and stayed with Trump in the general. And it is true, I think they were the ones among my respondents who talked a little bit more about trade and immigration um, than others. So, you know, this might, I mean, I, I gotta be, I have to be careful not to generalize, but, um, I think, you know, anecdotally speaking, I think those are the ones who seem to speak more about Trump's message versus some of the other guys who seem to speak about, you know, Trump's, the, the risks that Trump posed. And then again, sort of came around. And I did have also a few guys speaking of the evangelical piece. I mean, there were several men who were, um, they identified as evangelical and they, they did talk explicitly about their pro-life commitments and how that was important. And I do think, um, 
yeah, obviously that's an important, they didn't talk about the court explicitly, but there is this sense that, you know, the sort of capture of the Republican Party of this vote over the last 30 or 40 years, you know, that these guys, I think, are default Republican voters on a couple of these issues, you know, Second Amendment issues and pro-life issues. And so in that sense, their default is to support the GOP nominee. Um, and so they talked about more of those issues, those sort of culture war issues. Yeah, it reminds me a little of, of um, this meme that's going around among anti-Trump Republicans, whenever he does something especially awful, so every four hours, um, you'll see somebody posts this picture of there's this flood that's like swallowing a city. It's a photograph. And then there's like this sign just barely visible poking above the water. And it says, but Gorsuch. <laughs> uh, yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I wonder how much. Well, were your guys interested in the Supreme Court? Did that figure into their calculus? I mean, no one mentioned it explicitly. Um, and so I, in that sense, I don't know how closely they were tracking that. But I, again, a few mentioned the sort of pro-life issue as important. Um, I think the thing, as I think about this this group of men, I mean, they're, again, the thing that struck me, I did have sort of, I mean, and, you know, you have on the, the sort of base voters who who seemed to be, you know, either staunchly Republican or, you know, they were going to follow through and vote for whoever the Republican nominee was. And you had, again, right. these few guys who who Trump, you know, presented a unique appeal for. But then I think the majority of the ones who actually voted were were conflicted about the vote. And that's where I, mm-hmm. I just feel like as I think about what these results might mean, I mean, it's a, it's a small sample, but um, maybe we've underplayed the sort of mm-hmm. degree to which, you know, Hillary as the opposition was just for various reasons, and we can sort of unpack what those might be. But, you know, she just was not an acceptable choice. But these guys really did not want to vote for Trump. And I did have, you know, some who voted third party and some who didn't vote at all. Um, And so they just were conflicted about it, which is not what I expected to find, because I think a lot of the reporting sort of post-election, especially, I mean, the journalistic accounts where they go to a Trump rally and talk to Trump. So, I mean, of course, that's like a sampling on a dependent variable or, um, and, you know, there's been all this reporting too. I mean, all the all the discussion about the Nazi next door piece in the New York times recently. I mean, yeah, you know, that's a whole nother topic, but part of me, you know, I, in a way I sort of want to say, well, that's not representative. I mean, we know that, right. Is this, we're giving a lot of space to sort of these extremes, but even in, among these guys, I'm finding, um, yeah, just, you know, maybe more reluctance and more sort of concern about Trump than, than is being, you know, depicted. I mean, we see it in some of the, as Gabriel says, we see in some of the poll numbers, we know that, you know, Trump has a base, but that his, he's been, you know, consistently running, you know, he's quite unpopular and we know that his support is soft after a certain point. So I'm sort of, I mean, maybe what I'm capturing in some ways is some of that softness in the polling numbers. And I'm sort of curious to project ahead. And I mean, I'm not in the prognostication business, but just wondering, you know, come 2018 or come 2020, um, what's going to kind of come of some of these guys who were really concerned and in some ways gave Trump a pass because he didn't have a political record. As, as Leslie points out, he certainly had a record and whether these guys chose to just look past it or sort of give him the benefit of the doubt as a non-politician, I think um, then, you know, in, in four years, he will have a record to run on if he does run in 2020. And, you know, I'm, I'm sort of curious how these guys will reassess the risks that they took in voting for him. Okay. Yeah. So, so Robert, I actually, I, I wanted to follow up on what you just said, because my original question to you had to do with, um, 
with the skepticism of the men that you were speaking with. Um, you mentioned their skepticism and their reluctance. Um, and I was just, you know, wondering, like, can you give us specifics about their skepticism? What were they skeptical about? What were they worried about? Um, why were they reluctant? And also, and then, and then also have a second question, which has to do with your title, um, him, not her. Um, to what extent do you think gender actually played a role in, in their not wanting to vote for Clinton? I mean, there were many reasons not to vote for Clinton, um, and you mentioned some of them, but I'm wondering whether or not gender was also one. Sure. Um, two great questions. I think with the first question, I think most of these men, they seemed concerned that Trump was just erratic and reckless. Many talked about a vote for him as essentially a roll of the dice. Um, so I think and men, you know, some of the things you would expect, they questioned his fitness for the job, whether he would do a good job. They said he was a showman and a celebrity, but not necessarily um, someone that they could trust. Um, so I think it's some of the no same idea things. where they were getting all that from. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one thing that struck me in, in, in sort of answering this is just the fact that, I mean, one of the narratives post-election is how attractive Trump was to many of these guys. And, you know, there might be some element of that. Um, it's, you know, below the surface um, or maybe explicitly for some. But then there's also this piece about these men maybe were duped or they didn't see the things that we all saw. And I, I think that certainly wasn't true, or at least, you know, yeah, they were very clear at some of the risks that Trump posed. Obviously, they weighted things a little differently in the fact that they ultimately voted for him. But um, I think it was striking to me that they they did sort of see they were wide eyed about about Trump in a way that, you know, I mean, the Clinton campaign, in a sense, banked on the fact that they could convince everyone that Trump was unfit. And what's funny is that these guys really did see that. Um, but obviously, they made a different decision than the than the Clinton campaign would have wanted. During the election, I remember you know, the common thing to say, and it was totally true, was that the Democrats nominated the only person who could lose to Trump and the Republicans nominated the only person who could lose to Clinton. I mean, these were two, if you compare the candidate quality to 2012, where, you know, the Democratic candidate was pretty good and the Republican candidate was pretty good. Both of them were obviously qualified for office and neither of them seemed to be, yeah. you know, creeps or, uh, you know, or, or avaricious or, you know, crazy or anything like that, right? <laughs> yeah. You basically had two fundamentally decent, responsible, qualified people, um, you know, whereas you can make a pretty strong argument that both candidates were not ideal, um, even if you say that one was, you know, leaps and bounds uh, more stable than the other in this most recent Yeah, I, or more qualified for the job. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, the one, one did have a background in public service and did not seem fundamentally crazy, even if she did seem um, somewhat, uh, you know, venal. Yeah. Corrupt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting on the gender piece because I've, I've, I've frankly struggled a lot with that in the writing of the piece and even since then. I mean, it's, it's in a way tricky to tease out what sort of gender bias or sexism either explicitly or implicitly look like here. I mean, I didn't have sort of the Mad Men style um, sexism for the most part. I mean, a few guys said some some pretty sexist things, but they actually turned out to be some of my non-voters. Um, so I did have non-voters in among this group. So even though they had some terrible things to say, they wouldn't have influenced the outcome. Um, you know, I obviously didn't do any sort of deep dive about their views about women or women in politics. I'm not, you know, testing those sorts of things, but it was kind of surprising that there wasn't, or not surprising, it was, it was notable that there 
wasn't as much sexism as one might expect. But then that said, sexism isn't always, um, it doesn't always announce itself as such. And so the role of gender, you know, in some ways is hard to tease out here. I, I did title it Him Not Her because there was, you know, this thing about Clinton. I mean, a lot of them talked about she wasn't trustworthy, she was a liar, um, these sorts of things. But then, you know, it's tricky because, you know, so was he. Yeah, there's and and there's a lot of people on the left who who had you know who were concerned about Clinton who had similar critiques, um, and so I want to be fair to these guys and not sort of assume because they're white working class men that when they say they don't trust Clinton it's sexism, but when a you know a progressive says I don't trust Clinton that it's you know it's somehow vindicated. So um, right. um, I don't know. I mean, because what I'm th- I, I mean, I remember like very, I mean, basically the day after the election, um, you know, there were, I mean, there were lots of conversations going on around, not, and, and, and it wasn't, and it wasn't about the sexism of white working class men. Um, some of it actually, some of the conversations I heard were about how, per- it was that sexism is so pervasive that white middle and upper class suburban women voted for Trump over Clinton. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I'm not trying to suggest that, um, that because they're white working and white and working class, that they're more likely uh, to be sexist. But, but that, I mean, that, that thing about, you know, the women is absurd because it sets as a counterfactual that obviously they should have voted for the candidate who's more demographically like them and shows less personal boorishness towards their group. But so if you think in that way, oh, that's surprising that um, this constituency ultimately swung towards Trump. But if you just think of it as that is a strong Republican constituency baseline, and then it's it's like dog bites man to say Republican constituency votes for Republican candidate. It's true, but Republican women suffer from sexual harassment and sexual assault. This just the same as 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 democratic women do. Right. And so I think that's one of the, I think that that's actually one of the people thought that the things that he'd said and the fact that there were so many allegations against him, like, you know, including from his ex-wife concerning this people, I think assumed that, you know, that, that those women would that last least, week or was it the week before that we were talking about the reevaluation of Bill Clinton and how oh, people had been, week, yeah. Think. Right. And how people had been going back to this issue of like, you know, looking at how people thought about in the 90s and saying, wow, this is kind of gross to saying like, you know, not having Al Gore as president is worth uh, setting a double standard and undermining, uh, you know, the uh, reconceptualization of sexual harassment that happened prior to 1998 throughout the 1990s. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, partisanship is the most powerful force in the universe. That's all that's all I'm saying. (laughs) And so you should be shocked if, uh, you know, Democratic women still support Bill Clinton, or if Republican women still support Donald Trump. Um, in the American political universe. Well, in the American political universe since the 1990s, right? Uh, if you go back to the 70s, uh, the United States was not nearly as partisan. And there might, I mean, there might be other places where partisanship isn't as strong, although I know partisanship has been uh, increasing in many other Western democracies, including Britain. Robert, how big a factor was Fox News and that type of stuff, Breitbart and Drudge, in, in your in your guys' uh, sort of universe of information? Yeah, it's a good question. I didn't really probe that too much with them. I mean, these are sort of open-ended interviews without much of a script to them. So I was really just asking, you know, 
who they voted for and why and letting them sort of tell me. I, so I don't really have a lot of insight into that. Um, I do suspect that it's maybe in some ways less influential than some might think. I mean, I didn't get a lot of the talking points that one would maybe have expected if someone were just sitting in front of the TV all day and just regurgitating. Because again, you know, what I, what I heard about Trump was for the most part, reluctance in a few cases, a little bit of favorableness uh, around a couple of his policies. But for the most part, they just, um, they were just quite concerned about what a Trump presidency might look like. So in that sense, you know, I wasn't getting the true believers, which again, just for me, the the top line finding is this idea that there, you know, just was this reluctance I didn't expect to find, especially with some of the popular reports about Trump's great appeal to the white working class and how successful that that was mm-hmm. and historic. And, you know, when you get these dispatches from Trump rallies and places like that, then it's easy to sort of, you know, and on that point, I should say, it's easy to take that and to sort of just like, you know, paint the entire white working class with this sort of Trump enthusiasm. Well, so on this issue of enthusiasm, one of the things that was different and, you know, you can kind of see like the Bannon strategy and stuff like that cash out and and what ultimately swung the electoral college was that um, turnout was different. You know, one way that turnout was different and it's worth appreciating because it was just as important as what I was, I'm about to say is that black turnout went down to historic levels rather than at its extraordinarily ele- elevated rates that you saw in both of Obama's elections. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, on the other side, white working, non-college white turnout was much higher than it had been, especially in Rust Belt states. Um, and that does seem to have made the decision in those states that unexpectedly swung in the, uh, you know, industrial Midwest. Um, so that would be indicative on first glance, not of a hold your nose type approach, but of a certain amount of enthusiasm. And so it's interesting to contrast that with this, you know, these people don't seem to be naive about, you know, the guy they're voting for being, you know, to put it charitably erratic. Um, so, mm. How can there be people, and not that I'm doubting you, right? But uh, how can you have people who are in recognition that this person is erratic uh, and not really qualified and the lesser of two evils as they perceive it, um, and yet still turn out when they didn't turn out to vote for, say, Mitt Romney or for that matter, necessarily Barack Obama, right? That is to say, people who, by any reasonable standard, are um, much more uh, better character and better qualified, all that sort of thing. Yeah, I think that's right. And there's actually a new paper um, by Steve Morgan at Hopkins and a co-author. Um, they use the CPS and the GSS to sort of establish what you're talking about, um, mm-hmm. that there was sort of a, I think, a modest bump. I think they find a 3 to 4% bump in white working class turnout in uh, in the competitive states. So mm-hmm. there is evidence, as you're pointing out, that there is some elevation there. And so I've thought about that. I mean, but you talk about- oh, go ahead. Sorry, you talk about people who Trump moved. Like some of your guys uh, were moved to vote for Trump and vote for the first time. Yeah, that's right. And I guess, I mean, it's hard for me with a small ensemble to say sort of what's going on. I mean, but I think to your point, Joe, I, you know, one way of maybe reconciling these things is to say that, you know, there, there was some some portion of the, the electorate who were uniquely motivated by Trump. And the fact that I have a few in a relatively small sample, um, I can't generalize statistically, but the common sense inference is if it wasn't too hard to find these guys um, in my study, then there's probably a lot more of them out there. And so maybe that makes the margin. I mean, again, we're talking a few percentage points, but that's enough um, with the depressed turnout in other demographics. So, you know, maybe those are, I mean, the again, I think a lot of people have puzzled over, not that Trump got to, to, 
you know, 25% or 30%, but how he got to 40 and then ultimately to whatever it was, 46.1% of the vote. And so, you know, I think that there's a lot of types of folks in there. I mean, what is it, whatever it is, 60 million people voted for, for Trump. So um, there's a lot of different types of things going on in there. So yeah, even looking at my small study, I mean, some portion of that are people who were uniquely motivated for him. But then I think what I'm sort of sensing is maybe, or, and, and, you know, I can turn this back over to the data scientists and to say, you know, maybe we should pay a little bit more attention to the sort of soft middle or the apathy or some of this reluctance. And I'm just sort of curious, looking forward, how this might play out down the road, if it is indeed the case. I, I have a, so I, I, I just have a question for you about, um, about your interviews with these men in general, like, you know, politics aside, you know, what seemed to be their primary concerns? Hmm. So the bigger project I mentioned earlier is I'm really, what I'm actually interested in is the fact that we have, you know, good evidence that, and this is a long run trend that, you know, men are dropping out of the labor force, um, especially, um, uh, white working class men and working class men um, of prime age. So when we didn't really expect them to be in the labor market. So I've been really, um, my main interest is in sort of, you know, their experiences in the labor market. And um, and so that's that's actually what sort of the, the bulk of these interviews is really focusing on sort of their lives and what they're up to. And, you know, I think many of these guys, um, their lives don't look all that different if you really are up close with them. I mean, they're um, trying to make a living. They're, they have kids and families. Um, they... Um, and actually, I found in some degree, I mean, there's there is a lot of precarity and anxiety um, out there, I think. But, you know, they also, I think, are pretty uh, content in some ways. Right. I didn't find as much anxiety as maybe one might think. I think these guys are just trying to make their way in the world. Um, so it's sort of to be continued on their labor market prospects and situations. Um, so I guess, you know, check back in, in a year or two, and hopefully I have a, a final dissertation about um, the declining labor force participation among this population. But, um, you know, this, this foray into politics was not sort of the intent, but, you know, hopefully the paper when it launches um, can at least add a little bit of texture to this conversation. It's in a way sort of crazy that it's, you know, over a year after, and we're still in a sense litigating what happened. Um, so hopefully, you know, this paper can add something to this, that discussion. And now, a word from Editor Bain. And the identity of the new reviewer is a mystery, for one of you can reject the paper on the third round of revise and resubmit. You've been listening to The Annex, a sociology podcast. A special thank you to Robert Francis from Johns Hopkins. His forthcoming piece in Socius is him, not her. Why the working class white men reluctant about Trump still made him president of the United States. We're on the web, theannexpodcast.com, on Twitter at Socianex, and on Facebook, The Annex Sociology Podcast. On behalf of Leslie Hinkson and Gabriel Rossman, I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thanks. Thanks.